When you refuse to acknowledge God, the ultimate foundation of all logic and reason, the process of your thinking will be worthless. It will be terribly flawed. And therefore, the fruit of your thinking will be worthless as well. Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. Friend, how would you describe your worldview? Hello there, I'm Bill Wright. Today we continue Tom's series in Romans 1, titled God's Wrath Revealed and Man's Shocking Response. So far in this series, you've learned that rather than seeking after and submitting to the God of the Bible... All mankind instead rejects the truth about him and desires to live in a way that is antithetical to the Bible. In doing so, mankind creates worldviews that are opposed to what God has revealed in Scripture and in His Son, Jesus Christ. In our study passage in Romans 1, the Apostle Paul makes this very point. Unredeemed humanity would rather worship the created things of this world than the God of this world. Friend, is your worldview built on futile thoughts and systems or on the truth revealed in God's Word? Let's join Tom Pennington for more now here on The Word Unleashed. I want to finish the paragraph that we've been studying in Romans chapter 1. So I invite you to turn there with me. Romans chapter 1, and let me read this paragraph for you again. Romans 1, beginning in verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness, because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse." For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man, and of birds, and four-footed animals, and crawling creatures." Paul sets out in verse 18 of chapter 1 to indict all of mankind and to show that every human being needs the gospel. He begins this indictment in chapter 1, verse 18, and runs all the way through chapter 3, verse 20. But the group that he takes on first, that he indicts first, is the immoral pagan. These are people who do not profess to worship the true God of the Bible. And of them, notice he says, verse 18, and really of all humanity, the wrath of God is revealed, literally is being revealed from heaven. In other words, he's talking here about the reality not of eschatological wrath, not of the wrath of God that's coming in the last days, but rather a kind of wrath being demonstrated by God right here, right now. Now, the rest of chapter 1 answers 
two questions about this wrath of God against immoral pagans. This entire chapter from verse 18 to the end is is the indictment of the immoral pagan. And he answers two questions about this wrath. First of all, why is God's wrath being revealed? He answers this in verses 18 to 23. And secondly, he answers the question, how is God's wrath being revealed today against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men? And that's in verses 24 to 32, the end of the chapter. So we're answering the question, why? Why is God's wrath being revealed against immoral pagans, against those who do not claim to worship the true God of the Bible? And we've discovered here in this paragraph there are two reasons. First of all, his willful rebellion against God's law. In verse 18, he says, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness. That is the sinner's refusal to fear God, love God, and worship God. It is a refusal to build one's life centered in God to give God glory. That is ungodliness. And it's, this is what's required of all human beings. So it is ultimately a rebellion against what God has revealed. Also, unrighteousness of men. This has to do with all lack of conformity to the law of God both the things required of us in relationship to God and the things required of us in relationship to each other. So this is willful rebellion against God's law. That's why God's wrath is being revealed. Now, beginning in the end of verse 18 and running down through verse 23, Paul gives us a second reason God's wrath is being revealed. It is man's willful ignorance of God's person. He not only willfully rebels against God's law, he is willfully ignorant of God. Now, at the end of verse 18, he gives us a brief summary of this. Notice how he describes man. He says, they suppress the truth in unrighteousness. They hold down, they stifle the truth they know about God because they love unrighteousness, because they love their sin. That's the summary. And beginning in verse 19 and running down through verse 23, Paul gives us a detailed explanation of this willful ignorance of God's person. First of all, he makes it clear to us, as he explains this, of the fact that God has, in fact, revealed himself. Verse 19, because that which is known about God, and he's going to tell us what that is in a moment, is evident, it's clear, it's visible, it's plain within them. Why? Because God made it evident to them. Every single human being on the planet understands certain things about God. That's what Paul is saying. It is a fact that God has revealed himself. We noticed in verse 20, when God revealed himself. For since the creation of the world, this revelation of God has been ongoing since he made everything, since he spoke the world into existence. Verse 20 goes on to record what God has revealed about himself. His invisible attributes. There are qualities and characteristics of God that cannot be seen with the eye that he has manifested 
specifically his eternal power. There, Paul means both the fact that God is eternal, we see that in the fact that one generation goes down to another into the grave, and yet the world continues, sustained by the being who made them. There is a sense of which God is eternal, built into the creation. And he sees his eternal power in what has been made. He sees his divine nature, that he is God, that he is the supreme being. All of this, notice, has been clearly seen. How has God revealed himself? What mechanism, what means did he use to display these invisible attributes? Well, notice verse 20 goes on to say, they have been clearly seen being understood through what has been made. Man looks at the creation and he understands the truth of these invisible attributes of God. Everywhere he looks, he sees his eternal power and the reality of a divine being. What results from God's revelation in creation? Well, the end of verse 20 puts it this way. In light of all of that, they are without excuse. There is not one person who has ever lived or will ever live who will stand before God on the day of judgment and have an excuse. You say, well, what about the person who's never heard the gospel? No excuse. Why? Because they have rebelled against what they knew. And so they would have clearly rebelled against more if they had known more. No excuse. Now, last time we left off in looking at how man responds to God's revelation in creation. And it is a shocking response. We see this in verses 21 to 23. Man's shocking response to God's general revelation in his creation comes in two ways. We started to examine the first way man responds to God last time. Now, let me just stop here and say that I am exercising the prerogative of a teacher. If you take notes, what I'm about to share with you is going to be slightly altered from last week because I was struggling with the next section in terms of how to understand the flow of Paul's thought. And as it became clear to me this week, I've slightly changed the structure. It's not radically different, but you'll see it. So the first way that man responds to God's revelation is hard-hearted rebellion against the true God. Hard-hearted rebellion against the true God. Here's where man's rejection of the true God begins. Look at verse 21. And by the way, this hard-hearted rebellion is seen, as I've noted there, in verses 21 and 22 that we'll be looking at today. Verse 21 tells us where this rebellion begins. For even though they knew God, that is, they knew these things about him, they knew through the creation his invisible attributes of eternity, of power, of divine nature, even though they knew God, here's the first hard-hearted rebellion, they did not honor him as God. They refused, even though they knew these things about God, they refused to honor him as God. It was hard-hearted rebellion. The second part of their hard-hearted rebellion is they did not give thanks. This is man's rebellion. He knows, he knows there is a God, and he knows these things about God, and yet in his rebellion, he refuses to acknowledge God. 
and he refuses to give God thanks. Now, before Paul leaves this point, he explains the consequences of this rebellion against the true God. And this is where I had to work through in my own mind. I've come to an understanding of it based on the grammar, and and I hope to give you an understanding of it as well. So I want you to notice the verbs in verses 21 to 23 that are active. That is, man is doing something. The first one is in verse 21. They did not honor him as God. The second one is also in verse 21. They did not give thanks. The next active verb is in verse 23. They exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God. Do you see that? Those are all active verbs. Man is doing something. But the three verbs in the middle are all passive. You can see this in English. You can also see it even more clearly in Greek. Notice verse 21. It says, they became futile. That's passive. Something is happening to them. Verse 21 goes on to say, their heart was darkened. Again, this is happening to them. Verse 22, they became fools. In the case of those passive verbs, man doesn't do these things. These things happen to him. So the question is, who's doing these things to him? Well, I don't think it's God because God doesn't begin to act to verse 24. Notice verse 24, God gave them over. Verse 26, God gave them over. Verse 28, God gave them over. There is no indication in verses 21 to 23 that God is yet actively producing these things in their heart. So instead, these three passive verbs describe the natural consequences of man's rebellion against the true God. This is what happens when man refuses to honor God as God and when he refuses to give him thanks. These are the natural consequences. Number one, flawed thinking. Flawed thinking. Look at verse 21. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks. There's their rebellion. And the consequence of that rebellion is they became futile in their speculations. When someone refuses to glorify the true God, he has effectively denied reality. And when you deny reality, folks, there's only one place to go. Suppressing the truth about God in general revelation and refusing to glorify God or give him thanks, man is left with only one thing, futile speculations. The word futile means useless and therefore worthless. Speculations, the Greek word, is the word from which we get the English word dialogue. In first century Greek, this word can refer to one of three things. It can refer to the process of thinking. It can refer to the conclusions you reach in your thinking. Or thirdly, it can refer to the verbal exchange you have with others about your thinking. That's where the where dialogue comes in in English. Here, I think Paul means the first two, both the process of their thinking and the results of their thinking are worthless. What's he talking about? 
Well, in context, he's dealing, going to deal with idolatry. In verse 23, it's clear that he's thinking about idolatry. But I think in verses 21 and 22, Paul has more in mind than just idolatry. He's commenting on what happens to man's thinking when he doesn't respond rightly to God, his creator. When you refuse to acknowledge God, the ultimate foundation of all logic and reason The process of your thinking will be worthless. It will be terribly flawed. And therefore, the fruit of your thinking, the conclusions to which you come, will be worthless as well. He's talking here in this futile speculations. He's talking not about necessarily the day-to-day thoughts of what car you're going to buy or what job you're going to take. He's talking about worldviews. He's talking about philosophies. All of the worldviews, the grids through which unbelievers see the world, are without exception futile. They lack meaning. They lack purpose. You see, when people reject God, it profoundly affects their thinking and their conclusions. One commentator, Cranfield, puts it this way, all their thinking suffers from the fatal flaw the basic disconnection from reality involved in their failure to recognize and to glorify the true God. Lloyd-Jones puts it on a more philosophical level. He says, instead of accepting revelation, they become philosophers. And what is a philosopher? A man who claims that he starts by being skeptical about everything, that he is an agnostic, I'm going to have all the data, he says, and then I'm going to apply my mind to it. I'm going to reason it out, and I'm going to work it out. And that is exactly what such men have done. They became foolish and wicked in their reasonings, in their thoughts, in their conjectures and speculations. Remember what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 20. The Lord knows the reasonings of the wise that they are useless. You see, when you remove the epistemological foundation of any subject, you make it impossible to accurately understand that subject. Take, for example, mathematics. Let's say you decided to study mathematics. Only God knows why you would want to do that, but let's just assume for a moment that you decided on that course. No, I'm grateful for those who love math. I'm just grateful not to be one of them. But... But if you're going to study mathematics, imagine how far you would get if you rejected the basic laws of logic. Or think of studying matter while denying that atoms exist. Or think about understanding the human body, but laughing at the idea that the body is made up of individual cells. Or try to understand the universe if you don't believe in the concept of space. In each case, your conclusions will be worthless because you have denied the foundation of knowledge in each of those spheres. In the same way, if you turn from the one true God, you refuse to start with him as the foundation of your knowledge, you may arrive in your study at some correct facts about the human body and matter and the universe, but your overarching system will be inherently flawed. The grid through which you see it all has to be because you have denied the cornerstone of knowledge, which is God himself. 
This is so important to understand because it means all of the greatest human minds, but those who have denied God's existence have ended up creating systems and worldviews that are futile. They are worthless. They are foolish. Now, you understand, I think, that there aren't an unlimited number of worldviews out there. In fact, if you take all of the worldviews at present, current on this planet, depending on how you divide them, there are somewhere between 7 and 11 possible worldviews. That's it. In his excellent book, which I highly recommend to you, The Universe Next Door, a basic worldview catalog, James Sire lists eight worldviews. Here are your choices. Here's the cafeteria line of worldviews you can choose from. Number one, Christian theism. Number two, deism. Number three, naturalism. Number four, nihilism. Number five, existentialism. Number six, Eastern pantheistic monism. Number seven, New Age thought. And number eight, postmodernism. That's it. Those are your choices. Now, let me ask you, which of those worldviews is the prevailing pagan worldview and mindset in our culture? It's naturalism. Without question, it's naturalism. It permeates everything you read, everything you watch, the music you listen to. It is everywhere. What does naturalism teach? Sire has done a very good job in his book of summarizing the basic beliefs of naturalism. I'm just going to give them to you because I want you to listen and see how much of this you see permeating everything in our culture. Here's naturalism. Number one, matter is all that exists, and it has existed eternally. Number two, the cosmos is a closed system. In other words, There's no one outside the cosmos. There's nothing miraculous. There's no supernatural, no spirit beings. This is it. It's a closed system. Number three, human beings are not body and soul. Instead, they are merely complex machines. They are simply another version of animals. Number four, death is extinction. There's nothing after death. Now, if you believe that, what does that lead you to do with your life, by and large? It teaches you that life is all about self-fulfillment. Just get what you can because this is all there is. Number five, naturalism says life and history are random. There is no overarching purpose. It's all random. Number six, morality is determined solely by the individual and the circumstances. Therefore, truth is relative. There's no absolute truth. It's all determined by you. There's there's a closed system. There's no one on the outside who set the standard. It's up to me. Now, folks, if you've read anything in our culture, you know that that is the mindset of our time the worldview that rules our culture. It's important for you to understand, I think sometimes Christians are a little naive. They think that we are waging these distinct wars in the culture on different levels. You know, there's the war over evolution, and there's the war over abortion, and there's the war over same-sex marriage. No, we are not waging different wars. We are instead 
fighting the same war on different fronts. The push for these things are all the product of one worldview, naturalism. Every single one of them goes back to the undergirding philosophy of naturalism. And that worldview of naturalism that rules our culture and all the other worldviews that are contrary to God's revelation, Paul says, are futile speculations. They're worthless. They lead nowhere. They're a dead-end street. Rebellion against the true God always leads to flawed thinking and worthless speculations. That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed with part nine of his series, God's Wrath Revealed and Man's Shocking Response. Tom will have part 10 for you on our next program, and we hope you'll join us then. Church leadership can often seem like hazardous duty. Leaders can have both mountaintop experiences and seasons of discouragement. How can you, as a leader of Christ's church, faithfully respond to the different perspectives on leadership and the trials and triumphs of ministry? In Tom Pennington's book, Faithful Stewards, Tom identifies three key perspectives on church leadership that can help you maintain spiritual stability in ministry. Purchase your copy of Faithful Stewards today at thewordunleashed.org. That's thewordunleashed.org. And friend, it's our prayer that you'll be enriched by the expository teaching of God's Word here on The Word Unleashed. Connect with us on social at The Word Unleashed. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening to The Word Unleashed, exalting God's glory, explaining God's truth. (laughs) 